For all you elk hunters out there, chasing turkeys is basically the same thing. I know the reaction you just gave me, but don't knock it till you try it and don't try it without OnX. The Hunt app will not only help you find new areas on public ground, but I use it to find out landowner info to get permission on private ground that I see birds on as well. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you. Use code CAL to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt and find more birds this spring. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. Simply pour a can in your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. That's seafoamworks.com to learn more. Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Mediators World News Headquarters in Bozeman, Montana. This is Cal's Week in Review with Ryan Cal Callahan. Now, here's Cal. A black-footed ferret named Elizabeth Ann was born this past December, which in and of itself would be good news. The black-footed ferret is an endangered species that until 40 years ago, biologists believed had gone extinct. So any new member of the family is cause for celebration. However, Elizabeth Ann's birth is extremely, extremely big news because she is a clone. The exact genetic replica of a black-footed ferret named Willa, who died in 1988. Willa's genetic material was extracted and saved in what's known as the Frozen Zoo, a cryogenic preservation facility run by the San Diego Zoo that is currently securing the tissue of 1,100 different species at a temperature of negative 320 degrees Fahrenheit. Tickets to this exhibit don't sell very well, probably because the animals are frozen and your eyeballs would be too. I'm feeling hot. I find that unlikely. The black-footed ferret was once abundant in the American West, preying primarily on prairie dogs. But as agriculture spread across the region, the prairie dog was designated as a pest, hunted, trapped, and poisoned extensively. Many predator species, including several kinds of raptor, were hard hit when prairie dog numbers plummeted, but black-footed ferrets fared especially bad, and the scientific consensus was that by the end of the 50s, they had been completely wiped out. But then, in 1981, a dog belonging to a lady named Lucille Hogg dropped a very recently alive black-footed ferret at her front door in Matitsi, Wyoming, and a small remaining population was uncovered. This group thrived for a few years, but then disease tore through the population, and despite intense efforts to protect them, only seven individuals were able to pass on their genes. All of the black-footed ferrets alive today come from the offspring of those seven individuals. Thusly, 
They are very similar genetically. Real shallow pool, we'd say. A lack of genetic diversity means that if one individual is susceptible to a certain virus or pathogen, the entire population would be at risk of being wiped out by that same threat. And that is why Elizabeth Ann, the cloned ferret, is so exciting for conservationists. Willa, the ferret, whose genes Elizabeth Ann carries, was outside of the small group of ferrets alive today in the wild. Meaning, if this distinct genetic material can make it back into the wild population, then the resulting ferrets will be much more resilient and likely to flourish across the landscape again. But scientists aren't just going to drop Elizabeth Ann into a colony of wild ferrets and hope for the best. First, more cloned individuals will join her, then they will, we hope, have offspring, then those offspring will be bred back with wild ferrets, and then, if all of that is successful, the overall black-footed ferret population will be in much, much better shape. All of this ain't cheap. Just for Elizabeth Ann to be born, her genetic material had to be inserted into a domestic ferret's embryo. That embryo had to be gestated in a surrogate ferret, and then Elizabeth Ann was born by a cesarean section. Viagen, the private company handling these technical aspects of the operation, also runs a pet cloning business. If you have a cool 50000 bucks lying around, you can get an exact genetic replica of your beloved uh, snort. Much of the funding for cloning comes from a nonprofit organization called Revive and Restore, which also raises private money to pursue even bigger goals, including bringing back populations of fully extinct animals like the woolly mammoth and passenger pigeon. Several extinct species have their genetic material stored in the frozen zoo. It might seem wild to imagine a living woolly mammoth, but the mammoth isn't significantly distinct from the elephant. And so what scientists have accomplished with black-footed ferrets should be possible with mammoths as well. There are, of course, loud arguments about whether all this time, money, and effort would be better spent protecting other species that are still alive. What if we poured these resources into protecting habitat and combating climate change? Isn't an ounce of prevention worth a pound of cure? The same lack of genetic diversity that afflicts the black-footed ferret is also a huge problem for many game species, including the bighorn sheep. In theory, we could get a few bighorns out on the mountain with a new blend of genetic material that could make them immune or resistant to pneumonia. That would go a long way toward keeping that species alive and well. We've talked before about the reluctance of some hunters to take deer and other game with tracking collars around their necks. So I wonder... Would people be more or less enthusiastic about bagging a sheep that was the offspring of a clone? Possibly the exact replica of, you know, maybe your buddy's sheep. This week, we got a special deep dive into Pittman-Robertson funds and how they're used. But first, I'm going to tell you about my week. And my week, as well as this podcast, is, as you know, brought to you by Steel Power Equipment. Spring is darn near sprung. Better make sure you have what you need to keep your yard woodlot looking sharp. On top of that, it's only going to be like five months until we start looking up high in the mountains of Montana and thinking, boy, I don't like the looks of those clouds. Do I have enough wood for the winter? Go see your friendly independent steel dealer. For those of you hankering for more in-depth information on the Idaho Grizzly episode of Cal in the Field, Go back and listen to episode 63 of Cal's Week in Review. It's all there. 
New episode on fisheries, big money to be had in rainbow trout, drops Tuesday on the Meat Eater YouTube channel. Check her out and let me know what you think. All right, that's enough catching up. I did some traveling this week, went to Connecticut on a trip to look at where Pittman Robertson dollars go. Listen up. It is no secret that sales of guns and ammunition went up just a bit in 2020. Let's take a look at those stats. For the calendar year, 2020, the FBI conducted 39,695,315 firearm purchase background checks, up a full 40% from last year. For context, the year 2005, there were fewer than 9 million FBI background checks for total gun purchases. Firearm sales climbed significantly during the Obama administration, but this is by far the biggest year-over-year jump in history, and according to the National Shooting Sports Foundation, over 8 million people bought guns for the first time in 2020. No matter how fervent a defender of our Second Amendment rights you may be, you likely have a slight mix of feelings on this. We hope these first-time purchasers are having some help in the mechanics and safety areas of gun ownership, is what I mean. Gun sales in 2020 were driven by economic and social turmoil, self-defense, and, to a degree, providing food, as in hunting. No matter the purpose or intent of the purchase, Americans arming themselves is great news for protecting wildlife in the here and now. The reason will be familiar to many listeners, but for our new audience, let's recap the cornerstone of the North American model of conservation, the Pittman-Robertson Act. In 1937, Senator Key Pittman and Congressman Absalom Robertson wrote and passed a bill that applied an 11% federal tax on every sporting firearm and box of ammo sold in the United States. More importantly, the bill stipulated that every dollar raised from those taxes had to be applied to wildlife conservation. In just two short years, the act had raised $890,000, almost $17 million in today's money. It's hard to overstate how important this legislation was. At the time the bill was passed, American wildlife was in very, very bad shape. The effects of rampant market hunting and habitat loss meant that seeing a white-tailed deer, a wild turkey, or a black bear was exceedingly rare anywhere in the U.S. Biologists and lawmakers worried that without some serious intervention, those animals, as well as all the non-game species that coexisted within those habitats, would be gone for good. Since 1937, that 11% tax has been used year in, year out to buy or lease land for wildlife habitat, to manage that habitat, to fund scientific studies and surveys that inform conservation decisions, and much more. It is not an exaggeration to say that the thriving state of American wildlife today simply could not have happened without it. You might have noticed earlier when describing the tax I used the term sporting firearm. In the original act, only long guns designed for hunting were included. In the 1970s, however, Pittman-Robertson was expanded to include all handguns and non-hunting firearms as well. And it's a darn good thing it was. Although hunters like to brag about how much we do for conservation, at this point it's really competitive pistol shooters. Folks down at the range putting box after box of 223 through their ARs and people stashing extra ammo for a rainy day who are really pumping money into protecting wildlife. 
I think a lot of hunters are very proud of the fact that, you know, when they buy a hunting license or, or a fishing license, that they know that that money's going back into their state, uh, you know, wildlife management programs. And they should be proud of that. Um, but I think a lot of them aren't aware that uh, the tax that's paid through the Pittman-Robertson Act is paid by the manufacturers b- before that firearm leaves the factory. It's a 10 to 11% tax. It's, it's on every firearm or every cartridge that's made by a fire, by an ammunition manufacturer. So that tax is, is coming directly from the manufacturer to the U.S. Treasury, and it's already, it's already marked out for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife's, uh, Wildlife uh, Restoration Funds. So uh, it's baked into the price of every time you're buying a gun or you're buying an ammunition. So you are supporting that as an individual hunter, but that tax has been paid by the manufacturer before that firearm actually leaves the factory. As soon as that becomes a firearm, that becomes a taxable item. As soon as that cartridge is finished, it becomes a taxable item. So it's paid by that manufacturer before it leaves the factory doors. That was Mark Oliva from the National Shooting Sports Foundation, or NSSF. If you need another example, I, as a non-competitive shooter, may go through a few hundred rounds of rifle, shotgun, and pistol ammunition in a season. An average doing-it-for-fun trap or skeet shooter can run through 1,000 rounds in a weekend. Remember, the tax is applied to the ammo and the weapon, not the pursuit. My ammo consumption on average, if I'm like really trying to think about it, is about four to five boxes per big game rifle. If I only end up using one caliber for the year, that's 100 to 125 rounds or so. Maybe three to four rounds are going to be used on animals. A really big year with no misses or follow-up shots is three to four rounds. That's all. For bird hunting, maybe a case or 500 shotgun shells a year. More like two to three cases if I can get to the range to shoot clays. During the great wave of firearm and ammo sales since 2008, which has only intensified over the past year, some very, very serious money has been flowing through Pittman-Robertson to fund conservation. The $13.6 billion that Pittman-Robertson has generated since it was passed in 1937, over $7.4 billion, fully half of the overall sum, has come in just the last 10 years. This most recent spike in money is coming just in time. Although some states and universities have weathered COVID-19 fairly well, the majority have been crushed by the pandemic, and as their other funding disappears, Pittman-Robertson money is there to fill the gap. That means that state agencies can continue to do the work of habitat management, and state universities can keep their research studies going. Because the law was written requiring states to match one-third of the dollars they receive from the 11% federal tax, States have the incentive to keep as much of their own funds as possible dedicated to conservation. Here is Tom Decker from U.S. Fish and Wildlife explaining how that works. The funds go to the U.S. Treasury. States need to pass some legislation that says they will assent to following the rules and regulations regarding this program to become eligible to have the the funds come. And then there's a formula for every state, depending on the number of hunting licenses sold and the geographic size of the state. And then for some sub programs, the population of people in the states, that's an annual allocation. So every state, you know, Arizona gets an allocation every year based on the receipts from the previous year. And so there are eligible activities for restoration, monitoring, inventory, disease management, 
purchasing land, operating land, conducting hunter education programs, conducting recruitment retention reactivation programs. So there's all these eligible activities and a few non-eligible activities. And it's through a grant application that um, a state would write a grant to collect research information on black bear dens in Connecticut as a, as a large project. And they submit those to the Fish and Wildlife Service to make sure they meet all the criteria of eligibility. And then they're, quote, awarded the money. Um, and, and right up until they, they reach their maximum for that year. And those can be a one-year grant, a three-year grant, a five-year grant to do this kind of work over time and, and built in some, some regular data collection. So then, then it's a reimbursable thing. They have to spend funds, and then they're reimbursed for the funds they spent by 75%. The states have to bring a match to the grants, and that's particularly where sportsmen's license dollars come into play. There has to be this non-federal portion that the states bring to the table, and that is often their hunting license revenue links up with those excise tax dollars to create a project or a grant. Those matching state funds typically come from hunting licenses and tags, as Tom said, so the recent jump in hunter numbers provides more critically needed cash. That means we're in a bit of a renaissance for conservation funding. Of course, there's also a catch. This funding flows only as long as sales of guns and ammunition stay high. Although it seems like that might continue for a while, state wildlife agencies and universities will have to adjust whenever this cycle comes to an end. For an idea of what this money goes to, I went out with the Connecticut Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, or DEEP, to tag along on a winter black bear den study, which of course is funded by Pittman-Robertson dollars. In this case, the trucks, the tech positions, the equipment, the whole study. I have to stop briefly here and acknowledge the fact that DEEP, as an acronym, is hilarious to me. I'll let you find your own jokes there. It's about to get deep. This black bear is in deep. You know, fun stuff like that. Are we having fun yet? Anyway, I joined through a program called Partner with the Payer, which is something that U.S. Fish and Wildlife came up with to connect payers, as in manufacturers with projects that use the taxes they must pay to move firearms and ammunition out the door. Uh, this is why, or this is how, your dollars are being spent type of public relations effort. Mark Oliva of the National Shooting Sports Foundation facilitates getting the payers with the partners for this program. NSSF is the National Trade Organization for Firearm Manufacturers. Now, if you're wondering why U.S. Fish and Wildlife is here, again, represented by Tom Decker, when the black bear is not a threatened or endangered species, listen up. So black bears are a native species in the east, and they're under the jurisdiction of state fish and wildlife agencies. So the Fish and Wildlife Service for black bear management in each state doesn't really have the same kind of role if they were a federally listed species. That's where the federal government has that role in its management. We work collaboratively with state fish and wildlife agencies through the Pittman-Robertson Act and the administration of those wildlife restoration dollars towards um, grants that the state agencies like here in Connecticut are using to get the scientific information they need to manage bear populations. Now, don't get this confused with the Idaho Grizzly episode on the Meat Eater YouTube channel. This is Black Bears in Connecticut. Plenty of overlap, but this happened this week and not last July. Which of you listening right now took a class in school about family finances 101? No one? 
Me neither. Like the importance of a will or a college savings plan or even life insurance or estate planning, we have to know these things. But how do we figure it all out? That's why I'm excited to partner with Fabric by Gerber Life. Life insurance is important to me because I don't want to be a burden on anyone ever, especially when I'm dead and I can't chip in to, you know, lift heavy things and do stuff like that. That's why I have life insurance. And I know you don't want to be a pain in the ass because you're listening to my podcast. So get life insurance. Fabric by Gerber Life is term life insurance you can get done right here, right now. You could be covered from your couch in under 10 minutes with no health exam required. If you've got kids, and especially if you're young and healthy, the time to lock in low rates is now. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash cal. That's meetfabric.com slash cal. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash cal policies issued by western southern life assurance company not available in certain states prices subject to underwriting and health questions now a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating you know some organ the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill i had that when i was a little kid and it was a big deal Organ meats were always prized by frontier people who knew the importance of getting a lot of different minerals and nutrients. And, as often is the case, those guys were on to something. Because organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. And you can get the same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from heart and soil made exclusively from regeneratively raised grass-fed and finished cattle heart and soils unique freeze-drying process means all those important nutrients are trapped in ensuring you experience every one of the benefits of nature's superfood in a clean convenient taste-free capsule find out more at heartandsoil.co and make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. We've all seen plenty of gadgets and fads come and go, but here's one product that stood the test of time. Seafoam Motor Treatment. Lots of hunters and anglers know that seafoam helps engines run better and last longer. It's really simple. When you pour it in your gas tank, Seafoam cleans harmful fuel deposits that cause engine problems. I'm talking common stuff like hard starts, rough engine performance, or lost fuel economy. Seafoam is an easy way to prevent or overcome these problems. Just pour a can in your gas tank and let it clean your fuel system. You probably know someone who has used a can of seafoam to get their truck or boat going again. I guarantee you've listened to them because I use it you know, regularly. People everywhere rely on seafoam to keep their trucks, boats, and small engines running the way they should the entire season. Help your engine run better and last longer. Pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Paul Rigo, the lead biologist, is going to tell you why we're here. The point of the study is visiting these winter dens of black bears, trying to determine reproduction and survival. So when we go to the winter dens, we can drug, anesthetize the bear, the sow, like we did today, and we can count how many cubs that that sow uh, gave birth to. And then next year, we can visit the same bear and determine how many of those cubs survived to one years old as a yearling. 
So we're we're getting the reproductive level of the of the bears. We're we're getting the survival of the cubs, and we're also determining the survival of the adult females. And all those factors all can go into very simple population growth equations, and we're able to project the population growth of our black bear population. And what we have found is that very conservatively, our black bear population can grow 10 to 15% per year. And that's conservative. Some states have harvested 20% of their bear population and, and not caused a decline in the population. The sow we captured was in her den. We knew she was there because she was wearing a radio collar, which the team had previously tracked to this location. She was a big, healthy mom at roughly 280 pounds, somewhere between 8 and 10 years of age, and she had four cubs, one for each teat, so to speak. The cubs all weighed close to 6 pounds, three females and one male. The den was located between 60 yards from a hiking trail and within a quarter mile of several houses and a major roadway. Although we typically think of bear dens as caves or hollowed out trees, it seems that the majority of black bears in Connecticut go through their winter in surface dens, which is just a nest. This particular sow had scraped up a pile of leaf litter located on the edge of where a broad ridge drops into a creek drainage. The area around the nest was scraped clean of leaves, all deposited in this donut-shaped nest that was about a foot thick. There was a down tree that partially obscured the nest to the trail side. Other than that, I would call it fairly open. If you're thinking, wow, this is happening close to a lot of people, listen to what Paul says about conflict in Connecticut. As the bear population has grown, we've experienced in Connecticut a, a, a growing level of bear-human conflict. And uh, it's growing. And the, the one thing about, about our bear expansion is bears first moved into the part of the state with relatively low human populations. As the population of bears has expanded, it's now reaching some of our more developed towns and some of our towns with higher human population densities. So we think there's going to be an acceleration of the human-bear conflicts. Those range from people just not being happy with the presence of bears in their neighborhoods and near their schools to very tangible uh, conflicts such as bears breaking into houses, bears killing pets and livestock, damaging crops. So you could call her den site exposed. And this is where she rode out an abnormally cold Connecticut winter, during which she gave birth to the four cubs. Those cubs were hungry. On approach to the den, you could actually hear the cubs nursing, which was a first for me. Quick side note, this is an excellent example of a question I get all the time. Hey, Cal, what sleeping bag should I get? My answer is always, what ground pad do you have? You can get away with less on top of you if you're properly insulated underneath you. A good ground pad can save you weight in a sleeping bag. Keep that in mind. Of course, this is data for those of you who do not intend to go out and give birth. That's not my area of expertise. Much like the Grizzlies in Idaho, the team in Connecticut typically uses a jab stick, which is a metal pole with essentially a stout hypodermic needle on the end. They jab that to deliver a sedative to mom. Unlike Idaho, they also had a pair of dart guns, one powered through 22 rimfire blanks, the other CO2 cartridge. Depending on the age of the sow, how experienced a mother she may be, they'll either hunker deeper into the nest, 
or take off when the biologists approach. Seems the older the bear, the more they tend to stick around. That's what the trank guns are used for. I know the thought of the mom taking off out of her den doesn't sound much like hibernation, but we honestly don't know all there is to know about hibernation. When we approached this bear, she was listening, head up, alert, and aware. Aware of the fact that she and her brood were not alone. Because of her alert posture, it was determined that the jab stick would be a little too close for comfort. This was the first time I have seen a tranquilizer gun in action. The dart is clearly visible the whole way on its flight path. Target area on the bear are where there is low fat and high muscle density, typically the shoulder. Within 12 minutes, mom's head was on the ground and she was able to be handled. Here's the really cute part. In order to handle mom, you have to handle the cubs. They have claws and can stick like Velcro to at least anything I was wearing, but only their milk teeth, which is a set of teeth that are the precursors to the real teeth. And by comparing what the cubs had tooth-wise to mom's impressive teeth, this would be the only appropriate time to handle a bear cub. I asked the lead biologist, Paul Rigo, about the risk of habituation. Paul had this to say. I don't think what we did today uh, would lead to a higher probability of those bears being habituated. The female was drugged before we handle her, so uh, one would assume she wouldn't have any memory of what we did. Uh, And the cubs are at a very young stage. They didn't really receive any reward by what we, we did today. This type of research has been done probably for 50 years across many, many states. And I'm not familiar with any, any case where uh, there's any evidence that, that this den research really leads to habituation or boldness in the bears. What does habituate bears and lead to them being bold is when they get food rewards near humans. So that can be direct feeding, people purposely putting food out for bears, trying to attract them or indirect feeding, like bears finding bird seed, poorly stored household garbage near homes. And when the bears get food rewards, they learn to overcome their fear of humans, uh, their fear of human activities, the fear of barking dogs near houses, um, their shyness of traffic. And that's another big concern of ours in Connecticut, since we are a very populated state, that we currently do have many bears that live in very suburban towns and uh, have learned that they can find food near homes and have those bears have become very bold, quite habituated, just ignoring the presence of humans. We've had bears that really don't care that, that somebody fires a shotgun into the ground near them. It, it's pretty dramatic. For all the talk on this show about the danger of anthropomorphism, you know, putting our human sensibilities and emotions on animals. Let me tell you, when you have two six-pound black bear cubs stuffed into your jacket, they were previously cold and uncomfortable and making loud noises, but now they're piled up on top of each other against your gut, grunting back and forth, seemingly very content. Ah, boy. Hard to separate feelings from the situation. And it wasn't just me. Full disclosure here. Mark Oliva is a retired Marine gunnery sergeant. Gunnery sergeants are known to be pretty tough individuals who are supposed to act a certain way. Well, if you've ever seen a doting grandpa bouncing a new grandbaby on their shoulder, 
that was the scene. Kind of hopping back and forth, holding that little cub tight to his chest. That was one well-protected bear cub and possibly the cutest Marine you'll ever see. While we were doing this, mom was weighed, measured, photographed. DNA was pulled from her and the cubs. Mom got a new collar and was placed back in the nest. Her four babies crawling deep into her fur and murmuring contentedly by the time we left. Here's a side note for you. She had the hairiest bear paws I have ever seen. And when we used to hunt spring bear all the time, that's something we'd look for to determine how much traveling these bears had been doing out of the den, how much time they'd spent out of the den. So it was neat to see like very verified evidence of this bear that was still in the den, how she had hair that would overlap her pads. Whereas when they've been out traveling, that hair gets worn down just like your dog at home. But back to the topic at hand. Yes, there are risks involved with tranquilizing animals. And isn't it interesting that this scene was playing out in the wildlife urban interface, a spot I at least would not consider rural. Connecticut wiped out its bear population sometime in the 1870s, and the first bears wandered back into the state about three decades ago. An interesting takeaway from this scenario is this. You cannot hunt black bears in Connecticut, but these so-called hunter dollars are being used to fund the research to ensure a healthy population. I'll let uh, Mark Oliva mention one more thing. People are not hunting black bear in Connecticut, but this money is being spent to make sure that we have uh, good data on the perpetuation of black bear in this state. Many of us have been able to hunt black bear in other states, and we were fortunate to be able to do that. But to be able to get wildlife to the point where it's going to be a sustainable resource and it's going to be a managed resource, and, and obviously Paul's talking about that you know the department here is in favor of using hunting as a as a management tool for for the black bear. I think is is incredibly important, and I think it shows the importance of having responsible hunting. And I think that's kind of what we all go back to. And the, and the whole reason the Pippin Robertson Act was put into place was that you know hunters are conservationists. That hunters have a vested interest in the perpetuation of wildlife, not just for us to enjoy today but for our kids to enjoy tomorrow and our grandchildren to enjoy from years to now to make sure that we have that going forward. And it really is iconic of, of the North American wildlife system, right? That we have such abundant wildlife across the landscape. And that's, that's not the case in every country. And I think that's something that we should never really kind of look, our no, look down our nose on and, and never take it for granted. I know this isn't our regularly scheduled format, but thank you for letting me try this one out on you. Let me know what you think. If you need a very cute visual to go along with this episode, I did a fairly good job of documenting this whole thing. You can find the video on the old Cal 406 Instagram if you'd care to take a look. Also, new episode of Cal in the Field, which is this podcast in video format on the Meat Eater YouTube channel every Tuesday. This week, fish bounties, rewarding anglers for eating fish. Who'd have thought? That's all I've got for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. As per usual, let me know how I'm doing, and most importantly, what's going on in your neck of the woods by writing in to A-S-K-C-A-L. That's askcal at themeateater.com. Thanks again, and I'll talk to you next week. Hey, 
I just sat down with the owners and operators of Maui Nui Venison. They're on a mission to balance access deer populations on Maui while giving back to the community and run a totally sustainable operation. For folks like me who want to get your own meat but aren't always successful, you can become a snack subscriber, get some access deer sticks sent right to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com and use promo code cal for 20 percent off your first order outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems things like hard starts rough performance and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer simply pour a can in your gas tank hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season Pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. That's SeafoamWorks.com to learn more.